Well, so you can kind of bookmark it. We are going to spend most of uh, this time, this teaching time this morning in uh, our epistle reading from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. So today, the final Sunday of the church year, I guess in those terms, this is our New Year's Eve, but do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit uh, all day. And um, it's the last before the beginning of Advent. Uh, this year, we, we move from the, in the lectionary cycle from year C, which is the book of Luke. We're heading back now to the book of Matthew, where we'll spend most of the time interspersed with the book of John, which gets read in all three years. Um, I, I'm excited this year, very, very enthused about being back in the book of uh, Matthew because we get to study the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which is three chapters that are just the keenest identity statements of who we should be as people. And so yeah, just I'm really looking forward to that, as you can probably tell. And I stayed up too late last night. Today is the Feast of Christ the King, and today's Gospel reading from Luke 23, in many ways, describes his coronation. King Charles III's coronation is planned for May 6th, 2023, interestingly, just three days before my birthday. I mentioned this, my birthday, not the coronation, so that you've got enough time to plan and shop. So it's really a courtesy on my part to let you know that. The last coronation that we watched in the English-speaking world was Elizabeth II's in 1953. May she rest in peace. Millions watched on international television as royalty gathered. Regiments marched and the fleet lined up in formation as the entourage processed into Westminster Abbey. As she processed, bedecked in a silver velvet cloak, Elizabeth heard the choir singing repeatedly Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. She was handed the royal orb of gold jewels and pearls, the scepter studded with diamonds and sapphires, the royal ring of sapphire, ruby, and 14 diamonds, all before St. Edward's crown, gold and velvet, festooned with one, or 444 precious stones and weighing just over five pounds, was placed on her head. She was adorned with dozens of titles, Her Majesty, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, etc. 79 titles, to be precise, according to the internet. Everyone, including her mother, bowed down to her and all sang, God Save the Queen. She was borne away then in a golden carriage, and the powerful from all over the world rejoiced. Jesus' processional was ugly. He carried his own instrument of execution to his dying place. He was stripped naked and beaten. 
One title, King of the Jews, was mockingly affixed to the cross. Jesus sang in anguished cries, not Psalm, uh, not Psalm 122, but Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His hands bore neither orb nor ring, but iron nails. His scepter was a spear in his side. His crown was one of thorns. His mother bowed as well, though in intense sorrow. Mockers shouted, save yourself, ironically, as he was in the very act of saving them. He was borne away as well by a few friends, buried in a borrowed tomb. The powerful as well rejoiced because they thought they were done with him. At the conclusion of Elizabeth's coronation, she knelt, removed her regalia, and celebrated communion from a silver paten and gold chalice. And this meeting of worlds is the point at which we can discover what the gospel is and isn't. Because ultimately, Christ's is a kingship that brings worldly ideas of politics and power and prestige crashing down as we see in Luke's telling of the passion narrative. Jesus here enthroned as king, but whose throne is a cross between two criminals. This feast stands at the end of a long season, today being the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost, and it brings into sharp focus all we've been learning about Jesus during the many weeks of ordinary time. The first two of our readings from Jeremiah 23 and Psalm 46 tell not only of the promise of good things for the righteous, which is where our minds really like to go in the season leading to Christmas, but they also push us toward an inescapable reality of judgment. The king that Jeremiah prophesies will be raised up from David's line, and he will, unlike Israel's repeatedly negligent and evil shepherds, he will be not only good and kind, but also righteous and a decisive judge and an all-powerful ruler. St. Paul writes in the second half of today's reading from the book of Colossians, a hymn sung in the early church of Jesus, not only as head of the church, but as ruler of all things in heaven and on earth, and the one through whom all things were created. There is so much here about the ordering of all nations and all things under the kingship of Christ that it seems only right that there must be a feast that emphatically punctuates the all-embracing authority and centrality of Christ as we stand at the ending and beginning of seasons. For some of the world, I think we've got at least one in the back there, Kingship isn't an alien idea. But we Americans began a revolution against it 246 years ago and established a democracy as imperfect and deficient a form of government as it is. 
democracy being, in my opinion, the very worst form of government there is in the world today, except for all the others. There's a very, very funny and smart scene in the irreverent movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail in which King Arthur demands to know from a filthy peasant what lord lives in yonder castle. An argument ensues which leads to this exchange. Arthur, I order you to be quiet, filthy peasant. Oh, order, eh? What gives you the right? And Arthur says, I am your king. To which the filthy peasant replies, well, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> it goes on, but that's really, and by the way, is hysterical. You can Google it uh, and watch it on YouTube or watch it on YouTube. It's very, very funny and smart. But that's really the point of it. We're entirely acclimated and accustomed to appointing our leaders by election and not having them exceed by divine right. Kings don't have to be electable. They're just king. Monarchy is literally foreign to us. And most of what we know of monarchy is basically limited to scandals from Buckingham Palace or royal weddings or funerals or Prince Andrew's horrifying inclinations and choice of friends. Or what we've seen on Netflix, season six, by the way, out now. But as today's gospel shows us, Jesus' kingship is not limited to a country or a commonwealth or even to this world. It's far bigger than that and more glorious. Christ the King who reigns from the cross judges the repentant thief worthy of citizenship in his kingdom and promises him that they will be together in paradise that very day beyond death. Likewise, Christ the King, who will come at the last day to judge us all, not naked and bloody and dying, but as Lord of heaven and earth. So that being the case, it's probably a good idea to take a few minutes to look at why we call Christ King in the first place. In the epistle reading appointed for today, a hymn of the early church, Paul writes to the Colossians and to us through them, presenting Jesus' credentials as king and right to the throne, perhaps more eloquently than any passage in the New Testament. In this passage, Paul presents coming to faith in Jesus, not just as a move from kind of one spiritual state to another, from unforgiven to forgiven, but fundamentally as a move from one kingdom to another. In verse 13, he describes it as a move from one domain, one he describes as a domain of darkness, into the kingdom of the son he loves our tendency is to get distracted and caught up and anxious about all these momentary and temporal things. But if, if he were talking to us today, I think Paul would say, no, no, now on, from now on, this is where you live right here. You live right here. This is home. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the son he loves. You live right here. This is your kingdom. And of course, that kingdom, as all kingdoms, has a king. 
And Paul shows us in this passage what, that as residents of this new kingdom, our lives must be centered on Christ the King alone. But why? Why should we center ourselves only on Jesus? Why not look at Christianity as just something ancillary to the rest of our lives? Where does Jesus, why does Jesus have to be at the center? Is he that, is he kind of that um, insecure? Why as King must everything else in our lives be reoriented to him? And Paul's answer is his greatness. Look what he writes in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That word image, of course, being the word icon, the exact representation. Paul is saying something very similar to what the apostle John says in his gospel, where John says that no one has ever seen the father, but Jesus Christ, the word, God's unique son has perfectly revealed him. Paul is drawing on the idea of the incarnation and he's saying Jesus Christ has done something no one else has ever done. All humans have words for God and all cultures have certain understandings about God, but no one has ever seen God. Jesus Christ, however, has perfectly revealed the true God. He's revealed him in the flesh. He comes to the earth to show us who God really is. He goes on to say, in verse 16, that Jesus is also the creator. He begins to describe the second person of the Trinity who has come to earth as God himself when he says he's the one who created everything. And then he lists the things that he has created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything. <laughs> that is a comprehensive word. Everything has its origin in Jesus Christ. He's the creator, and he's preeminent because he's the creator. But not only has he created the world, Paul goes on to say that the world exists for him. In other words, not only does everything in the world owe its existence to Jesus, it also owes its continuance to Jesus. And because of that, it has an obligation to Jesus to live in reference, not to ourselves or to a political ideology or to a nation, but to him. And in verse 17, he says, everything holds together in Jesus Christ. What, what does he mean by that? Simply this, that the world coheres because Jesus Christ is its creator. Coherent is an adjective that means united as or forming a whole. Think of, uh, think about those, those big cables on the suspension spans of the Bay Bridge. That's not, not just one massive cable or lots of individual cables pulling on their own. Hundreds of cables are tightly bound together to form a whole which is much stronger than the sum of its individual parts. And we, and as we individually and collectively unbind ourselves from him, as we reject his authority, as we reject his greatness, our own greatness diminishes. The coherence in our own lives and even that of our culture begins to weaken. We can sense this happening more and more all around us today. 
But as we bind ourselves to Jesus Christ, he begins proportionally more and more to cohere. Life begins proportionally more and more to cohere. He already does. It's both strengthened and sustained. Paul is saying that Jesus has preeminence over everything because he is the creator of everything and everything exists for him and everything coheres in him. It is only through Jesus Christ that we begin to understand who God is and that we begin to understand who he's created us to be as well. Paul emphasizes here not only the godness of Jesus Christ, but also his humanness as the climax of humanity reaching its fullest expression. And that's what makes Christianity singular, the incarnation. God himself entering matter and taking on a physical body. And there is simply no higher value you can place on what it means to be human and human life than that the word became flesh. And Paul wants us to begin to understand the depth of what the incarnation means. All things are created by Jesus Christ and all things exist for him. And it's only in him that all things hold together. And for those reasons, he is the only one worthy and able to redeem all things as well. As it says in the prayer that we played, prayed today, the collect, all things have their roots in him and exist in him. And it's only as they turn toward him, as they are bound to him, as their defining center that they begin to become more fully what they ought to be. All things. So much of the church today embraces a, a, a small kind of privatized Christian piety that unwittingly reduces the greatness of Jesus to a simple and manageable little sphere of their lives, namely the forgiveness of sins. It's so simple, in fact, that it's been reduced to a bumper sticker. Christians aren't perfect. What does it say? Just what? Just forgiven. Really? I mean, just forgiven? Is that all we are? I, I don't want to be misunderstood. That our sins are forgiven and we can live in ultimate relationship with the holy God is mind-boggling. And Paul points to that here, but mind-boggling as that is, salvation is so much bigger. It's scoped so much profounder than that. Gambian theologian Laman Sana defines conversion as the turning of all of ourselves to God without leaving anything behind or outside. It's a refocusing of even the material life and its cultural, vocational, and social underpinnings and of our feelings, affections, and instincts in light of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Conversion is a turning, I'm done quoting now, conversion is a turning of everything toward the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, cultural, vocational, social, feelings, affections, desires, instincts, everything. Paul is asserting that all, everything, not only falls under the rubric of the reign of Jesus Christ, but also only begins to find its completeness there. This is why he's our king and center. Finally, Paul writes in verse 18, and Jesus is the head of the body, the 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul here reminding us that the church that exists in the world today, more than two billion people, has come into existence only by the greatness of Jesus Christ. And the church is a certain kind of place. It's a community of people centered on his greatness. We have our origin in his greatness. We are focused on his greatness. We are the community that in some sense represents a new kingdom and a new humanity that God has brought and is bringing into existence. And Jesus is the head of the church. He's at the front of the church. He's at the center of the church. The Jesus that Paul describes here. Paul also says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. What does he mean by that? Well, one day on the road to Damascus, Paul encountered the risen Jesus. At the moment he encountered him, <coughs> pardon me, at the moment he encountered him, he began to import everything that he believed would happen through Israel into him. He'd been waiting for a consummation, the redemption of all things that we've been reading about over the past several weeks in our Old Testament readings. He'd been waiting for this new world that God was going to bring into existence. And when he meets Jesus, he realizes immediately it's happening. All those stunning and sometimes perplexing prophecies have come into focus in one Jew, in Jesus Christ, Messiah. The new world God has promised is inaugurated in him. We are inescapably heading toward Christmas. But Christmas is so much more than a happy holiday for followers of Jesus because it reminds us that the new world has begun and it began with the incarnation of Jesus. I just want to make sure I didn't, hadn't fallen asleep. <laughs> that would be a hard one to live with. And through him, the entire world, the entire cosmos will one day be fully restored, redeemed, renewed, repaired, and reconciled. It's in the greatness of Christ the King that we see the depth of the love of God, not only for us, but for all his creation as, as well. In Christ the King, all of the brokenness, all of the sorrow, all of the sadness, all of the mess begins to be erased. He takes it out of the way by taking it into himself. In exchange, he gives us a new life. He gives us a new world. He gives us a kingdom. And all of this comes only because Jesus, because this king humbled himself and poured himself out. He came into our world as one of us, and he came because, as it says in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he was pleased as man with men to dwell. How can we possibly describe, fully accurately describe a king like this? Well, Dr. S.M. Lockridge, uh, a black preacher, the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, California from 1953 to 1993, a guy I got to hear preach once when I was in college back in the day, gave a sermon 
in Detroit in 1976. And most, if not all of you, have heard what I'm about to say before. But it's absolutely worth repeating. So here goes. The Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king, and I wish I had his voice. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limited love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that the world that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the one, only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength to the weak. He's available to the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He, he defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged, he rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. I wonder, do you know him? He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway to peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is a Enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Oh, I wish I could describe him to you. <laughs> but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. End quote. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Lockridge. Yes. So the question is, I think, how do you come to such a king? You come to him humbly in worship and adoration as you begin to understand and experience the depths of his love for you. You bow in awe, ascribing to him as is most justly due all might, majesty, dominion, and power henceforth and forevermore. You come and you feast from his table at his invitation. Or maybe, maybe you've only got strength enough to simply come as the criminal who prayed for forgiveness with the last few breaths in his body 
and you listen as Christ the King responds to him in compassion and grace and love with his own last breath. I wonder, do you know him? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.